Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we'll be speaking with Dr. David Feline. But first, we'd like to check in on current hot topics in health and healthcare. And Harlan, what, what got your attention this week? Yeah, Howie, I wanted to talk about a study that came out that took a look at multivitamins and its effect on memory. Oh, I love that and, one. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You got to know that I'm like a skeptic about all this stuff. I've been telling everyone for years, all it does is enrich your urine. But And, you know, and by the way, it. I have vitamins at home and I rarely take them until this paper came out. But I haven't even read the actual paper, so I want you to tell me what I should know. Well, look, I'm not against placebo, by the way. I think placebo can have powerful <laughs> effects. But, but you know, I've been, you know, kind of down on the ways in which vitamins, these, these supplements that you see all over the place, that they're promoted very heavily, with well, the effect that they can have on people's health, because in general, the studies haven't been very positive. But recently, a study came out that showed up in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Now, we don't usually see our landmark trials showing up in a, in a journal like the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And yet, and yet, this study that was came out of, of uh, Harvard and, and other institutions, Columbia, Chan School of Public Health, and others, took a look at whether or not, and I'm just going to name it, yeah. Centrum Silver. They did too. But, but yeah. it's not meant to be about Centrum Silver yeah. as much as these a multivitamin, whether the use of it every day could, in fact, help people's cognitive performance. And, and they used this thing called the Monray test, which was that this was their, the primary thing they were leveraging on, which is about showing people a bunch of figures and then having them draw them themselves and having to recall them. And it sort of produces a bunch of scores that are reflective of, of executive function and recall. And, and so... They had people take these pills, and after about a year of the intervention, they they took a look at this, what's called episodic memory. Really, it's it's, it's this immediate recall of these things, and, and lo and behold, it was better in the people who got the multivitamin. Now, this was a placebo-controlled randomized trial. The, the thing that's surprising about it showing up in this journal is that there are a lot of observational studies of foodstuffs that end up in highfalutin journals that are probably suggesting a strength of evidence that that they really don't have. And, and it's because food behaviors are so confounded with so many other things that people do. People who eat certain ways also tend to have physical activity or do a lot of other things, use seatbelts. I mean, people who are eating a lot of vegetables, for example, and fruits and watching their diets and, and not eating a lot of fatty foods, you know, are probably doing a lot of other things. So these observational studies are are hard to do in ways that will help us give us confidence about what the right thing to do is. But this was actually a randomized trial, and it was building on a prior randomized trial in which people were called up and they went through these tests and, and also found a benefit of multivitamins. This one was an internet test, so it was really actually being done as a, as a large-scale decentralized study in which it was really easy for people to participate just online. And they had more than 3,000 people. And and what they suggested was that the effects of the improved performance was equivalent of three years of age-related memory change. That's incredible. So let's just say maybe this is an exaggeration. I mean, I don't know. It needs to be further validated. We need to understand it better. But other studies have demonstrated that these multivitamins are, are safe. And so I will tell you, for yeah. someone who never took vitamins before, I'm starting to take some vitamins. Me and too. Every day since I first heard the story. Every yeah. day. I was just going to say the, the other thing that was a little surprising, but maybe I just don't know enough neuroscience is 
that despite that pretty significant improvement in, as you say, executive function short-term retention, they saw no improvement in long-term retention of information or any other sort of uh, neurologic functions. So this was the weird thing. Not everything improved. And I think this is sort of perplexed people about like, why did that happen? So what's the pro? Randomized. It's a second study that's looked at this. They both came to kind of similar conclusions, you know, good group of people doing it. Uh, On the other hand, why wasn't there more consistency? Some people think this benefits small. Like I said, they they believe it's rec- it's equivalent to three years. I think that's big. It's big. Um, anyway, you know, there's yeah. going to be a lot of discussion about this. But this, those of us who care about evidence, uh, might start changing our behaviors with regard to vitamins based on this study. And as you said, there's no evidence that I'm aware of that vitamins in the doses of these particular vitamins we're talking about, not these mega doses that are sold separately, that in these doses, that there's any meaningful adverse effects. So the the weight of decision-making for someone like me is just go ahead and take it. So Howie, let's let's get to David Filene. Dr. David Filene is the inaugural director of the Yale program in addiction medicine, which is internationally recognized for its innovative treatment models. Dr. Feline is a professor of general and emergency medicine at Yale School of Medicine and a professor in the health policy and management department at the Yale School of Public Health and an authority and scholar studying the intersection of primary care and addiction with a focus on opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder. He's the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Addiction Medicine and the co-editor of various other addiction-focused publications. He holds a bachelor's degree from Earlham College in Indiana and an MD from Emory University. He completed his internship and residency at Yale New Haven Hospital and was a Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholar at the Yale School of Medicine prior to joining our faculty. So first of all, I want to welcome you. And when we were preparing for this, I, it's the first time I ever heard of Earlham College. No offense to the many great alums. It's this, very this is how he's this is how he's New York centricity. As, as someone from Dayton, Ohio, of course, I knew Earlham. Very I told well. him that I every time him. I drove to Indianapolis, I drove right by. So but, it is, but it is a small college. It's seven hundred people. But what I was an intrigued outstanding by, college, an outstanding school. Yeah, college. what I was intrigued by is seven hundred on a good day. On a good day, <laughs> I was intrigued by the fact that there's this commitment to social justice, to community involvement, to fairness, to peace. And that, that almost defines sort of the lens in which your whole career has, has gone. And I was just curious to hear from you how that informed you, how you made a choice to go there coming from the Northeast and, and what it has done for you. Well, thank you, Howie and, and Harlan. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and to highlight the wonderful uh, experience that folks can have at a a school like Earlham. Earlham is a Quaker college, and so not surprisingly, it has the commitments and and, uh, attracts students and faculty who address the areas that you describe. Um, My father was from Illinois. My mother was from uh, the Greenwich Village. And so I was curious growing up what it would be like to live in the Midwest. And um, they had had a wonderful experience going to a small liberal arts college and so I opted to pursue that experience rather than going to a, a school in the Northeast. 
um, primarily because I found schools in the Northeast were populated by folks from the Northeast, and I was curious in getting a, a wider view of the world. Um, you know, I think the other thing about Earlham is it's, it's a liberal arts uh, education, and I've found that in the work that I do, which involves policy, education, clinical work, and research, having exposure to a wide variety of undergraduate disciplines has allowed me to effectively work in this area. Um, I opted to go into medicine after um, a period of time graduating college and, uh, you know, was not necessarily destined to go into addiction medicine. I uh, pursued internal medicine, uh, general internal medicine. I had a wonderful training experience. Uh, what um, one of my mentors, Alvin Feinstein, liked to refer as a two-year sabbatical, uh, learning clinical epidemiology and research methods. Uh, Harlan was came on actually as the director of that program as I was graduating, um, and you know opted at the time to take the methods and the skills that I had learned in clinical epidemiology and apply them to an area that was under research, which was sort of the the specter of substance use and addiction. I, I really found in reviewing the literature at the time that it could benefit from many of the skills uh, that had been applied to other areas of medicine. And, and that's really been the focus. Um, I think the other thing you highlighted is that the focus of our program uh, is bringing addiction services, screening, prevention, treatment to general medical settings, hospitals, primary care clinics, HIV clinics, emergency departments, uh, OBGYN settings. You know, um, most patients um, who are experiencing substance use are, uh, are hesitant to uh, seek treatment. And so if we can bring the services to where those patients already uh, are seeking care and receiving care, it allows us to, to be much more efficient and effective. So many questions I want to ask you, but I want to get to, to this one first. So what about this Ozempic thing? You know, is, is this going to cure addiction? Is You're one of the world's experts in addiction. People are talking about these weight loss drugs as being able to blunt the sort of urges that people have who are facing substance uh, use disorder. Is, is this just hype? Is it, you think there's anything to it? What, what, what's going on with this? Yeah, no, and uh, thank you for bringing this up, uh, Harlan. Um, uh, there is good um, preclinical data, uh, primarily in um, rat models that indicate that there is decreased uh, appetitive behavior, decreased alcohol consumption in, in particular. There is some emerging human data, like other medications and other strategies. We need to do more rigorous trials to really look at dose and, and frequency and duration to determine and compare it to effective treatments uh, or other treatments to see whether or not it will uh, form a, you know, one, of the, one of the mechanisms in our armamentarium of treatment. Two of the most common drugs that the public hears about now, if, if they're reading about this in the lay press, are buprenorphine and naloxone. And I was wondering if you could just help people understand in terms of opioid use disorder and maybe first define opioid use disorder for our listeners, but what roles do they play and why are, are they so critical to reducing mortality and maybe even morbidity from this? So opioid use disorder, like all substance use disorders, implies not just physical tolerance, but also adverse consequences and essentially loss of control. 
we tend to use, and most folks have standardized on the um, Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the fifth version, or the DSM-5, um, which outlines nine criteria for substance use disorder. They include physical dependence uh, as manifested by intolerance and withdrawal, but also the signs and symptoms that indicate that an individual has lost control. So continued use despite adverse consequences, use in hazardous situations or performing role functions, uh, repeated attempts to control or cut down. So that sort of loss of control. Then we say you have a substance use disorder as opposed to an individual who may occasionally use cannabinoids, tobacco, even alcohol, where they're not manifesting adverse impact on their lives. And so that's when somebody has transitioned to what we call a substance use disorder, opioid use disorder in the news of of late these days. The two medications that you described function very differently. If you think about the analogy to diabetes, using a medication like naloxone is like treating DKA without addressing the underlying biology. biology And and DKA, just for our listeners... Yeah, I'm sorry, uh, diabetic ketoacidosis. So the most severe manifestation of somebody's uh, blood sugar being out of control. Um, And so naloxone is a very effective medication. What it does is it goes to the opioid receptor, it binds to the opioid receptor, and it basically displaces other opioids that are in the system. And so this is highly effective in a situation where an opioid that a person has ingested Uh, be it fentanyl, be it heroin, be it a prescription opioid, is causing overdose, respiratory depression, and basically a person no no longer breathing. And so it's um, among the most effective strategies. And one of the things that we're really trying to promote today is wide availability of this medication, given that people can experience overdoses when they're using fentanyl, but also we're seeing it as uh, fentanyl and other high potency synthetic opioids as contaminants in other drug supplies such as cocaine. And so um, the way you might start seeing more widely available naloxone, the way you see cardiac defibrillators and and the like as a public health response, um, we need to be able to have these medications available when these events occur. Now, the other medication you asked about is is buprenorphine, and this is a partial agonist or a partial receptor binding medication at the opioid receptor. And um, this is a medication that is used for long-term treatment of opioid use disorder. The notion is that once a patient is stabilized on a medication like buprenorphine or the other uh, highly effective medication is um, methadone. Once they're stabilized on these medications, then patients no longer experience the withdrawal and the craving that they would have experienced before they were in treatment. You know, one thing that folks probably don't realize is people with established opioid use disorder typically are no longer getting high anymore in order to obtain the amount of fentanyl or heroin that they used to use to experience euphoria, that ship has long sailed. Um, And so they're primarily using these substances to prevent the experience of withdrawal. And so a medication like buprenorphine, which binds to the receptor, 
prevents them from feeling that withdrawal. And it also blocks the effect that they might get if they were to use heroin or fentanyl on top of those medications. So what it means is that a patient can work, they can take care of their children, they can function normal in, normally in society, and they're not experiencing euphoria. The medications are taken once a day, they're not injected, they're avoiding the, the um, uh, infectious complications, and their cognitive abilities are, are intact. And so that's a medication that we use to treat patients longer term. And the amazing thing is it can decrease mortality in individuals with opioid use disorder who have experienced an overdose by 50%. And so we need to be very uh, aggressive in making sure that people have access to these medications. One of the questions I have, though, is just like oncologists in the period where there were few options, the failure rates are so high, in particularly in earlier in your career when there were fewer options to treat people. I, I, I just wonder, how, how did you find it in yourself to be able to continue when, you know, despite best efforts, you know, the failure rates were so high? It's an interesting question. I'm a primary care physician, a general internist, and I've never cured uh, the diabetes in my patients or hypertension in my patients. And I will say that one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done as a physician and certainly in primary care is to take somebody who's been using opioids, injecting heroin or fentanyl uh, every day for the past five or 10 years and have them come in, uh, start a medication like buprenorphine, and they come back within three or four days and they say, you're the best doc in the world. I've never felt so normal. I've never felt like I can function again. I'm back. I'm taking care of my kids. Um, my, my wife is uh, talking to me. I'm saving $100 a day. As you said earlier, we often see the failures, um, and we don't highlight the successes that many of these uh, individuals experience. And yes, it was very gratifying to my the physician in me to, to feel like I was making a profound change in people's lives. My early work was with folks who were primarily exposed and using prescription opioids. And my experience in, in Connecticut was most of these folks were like everybody I grew up with. And for whatever reason, they became exposed to opioids uh, and developed an opioid use disorder. And so I would have individuals who were working in, in our hospitals, being coaches on their kids' soccer teams, um, folks who were providing service in fast food industry and other types of service industries. It was not as if this was only a destitute population, um, you know, sort of the tip of the iceberg. Well, and that we and just to one see. quick so, follow on 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 this is how complicit do you think the medical establishment was? To answer your question, I think we were complicit in, number one, failing to rigorously question the efficacy of opioids in chronic pain. I think they work for a subset of individuals with uh, chronic pain. And number two, the medical field and the medical establishment was too aggressive in prescribing these beyond their indication. Just want to get one last question in while we still have you. You know, if you're not entering care through an addiction medicine practice, the most likely place that you're entering the system is through the emergency room right now. And so efforts are being made to train 
our emergency medicine providers um, to be better prepared for initiating treatment, not just the acute treatment of, of respiratory failure, but, but hopefully beginning recovery in some way. Just wondering, I know you've done a considerable amount of work in this area. I'm wondering how promising that is and what it will take to get our emergency medicine workforce to be you know, hand-in-glove partners with addiction medicine to be uh, approaching this holistically and, and uh, 360 degrees. I'm very hopeful. I, I think there are a number of factors that are driving this. First of all, is just the prevalence of the condition. Second of all, is the fact that, as you say, we have effective treatments. And um, the stories that I uh, mentioned or alluded to earlier on, um, I think as our colleagues start to experience that type, those types of successes, it becomes very rewarding and, and reinforcing for the behavior. And I think the third thing that's important is that there are um, change leaders in the field who are really advocating, and some of it's a bottom-up approach. I think the younger generation of medical students, residents, fellows, and, and attendings have um, trained in places in ac large academic medical centers that maybe uh, have adopted these types of practices and seen the benefit and seen the role that emergency department can play in initiating effective treatments. Uh, I've been uh, pleasantly surprised to see traveling all around the country, me meeting my ED colleagues, what a public health approach they, they take. Um, you know, they see gun injury, they see motor vehicle accidents. And this is just another example of, you know, the, the obviously the end stage disease that they see, but that they can intervene on early on. So, um, you know, this is all now falling in the realm of what we call implementation science. And I've seen it repeatedly over and over. You know, 20 years ago, we were talking about getting primary care physicians on, on board to start medications and treat opioid use disorder. Uh, we haven't gotten there far enough, but we've made great progress. Uh, same thing with HIV physicians. And then now in hospitals, quite frankly, it's amazing that you can go into a major academic medical center and see a cardiologist, an oncologist, a, a, a subspecialist in surgery, but you're likely to receive care from a social worker for an addiction. Nothing against social workers, but number one, oftentimes they're not adequately trained and they will admit so. And they also don't have the same type of understanding of the underlying biology of these processes. And I think that's a paradigm shift that, that um, hospitals and health systems around the country will need to come to grips with. And we need to train a, a larger workforce. There are only four or 5,000 addiction specialists in the country. I can see the parallels with obesity very well. You know, we tend to sequester these as behavioral, when in fact, like you said, they're, they're actually biological issues that, that need to be addressed in addition to uh, social context and so forth. Okay, look, I've got one last uh, question. You grew up in New York, but you've got a Rob Gronkowski jersey behind you in the room. People can't see this, but I can see this. What the heck, man? It's, uh, are you in New England or New York? What's Yankees, Giants, and Knicks. Listen, I'm in my kid's bedroom. <laughs> New Haven is actually the borderline between Boston and New York fans. And yes, I am it is. It's the divide line. in this you house. You lost your child to New England? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Look, 
Very we, observant. We just want, to, want to just express deep gratitude for you being here for, yeah. and, and even more for all that you've done, you know, in this important area, you've advanced it so far. You've done it with teamwork, with a great team, a lot of wonderful colleagues. You're always generous and giving credit to others too. I've seen you and your work is, is just at, at the highest level. And I just want to both congratulate for what you've done. I'm looking forward to what you're going to continue to do and appreciate you being on the podcast with us. Thanks, David. Thank you to you both. And I appreciate again, the opportunity. Well, that was a terrific interview. I really loved great. hearing from David and I'm so proud of a RWJ clinical scholar uh, alumnus that's just done so well and not only advanced the field, but helped so many others and, and continues to be so active yes. and make such contributions. But but let's get to another favorite part of the show for me, which is hearing what you're, what's on your mind. What are you thinking? So this is related to what you talked about in the intro a little bit. So an article in the New York Times this week mostly about the specific dietary supplement called berberine, which that the article itself was entitled, quote, the truth about nature's ozempic, close quote. It caused me to revisit how we regulate dietary supplements in this country. And the article itself explains how berberine is an extract of certain plants. It might have, and in fact, there is evidence uh, of a potential uh, in treating insulin resistance, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and even obesity, uh, and even high cholesterol. There is no evidence that it has anywhere near the effectiveness of semaglutide, which is better known as Wegovy or Ozempic, right? But it is also neither inactive or innocuous. Unlike our prescription drugs, dietary supplements do not require the FDA to assure safety and effectiveness, which I think a lot of people don't know. The Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994 is a mere 11 pages long, co-sponsored by the Republican senator from Utah, Orrin Hatch, very well respected, and the Iowan senator, Democratic senator from Iowa, uh, Tom Harkin. But in that very short bill, a lot of protections are in place for the supplement industry, which, by the way, is a more than $150 billion global industry. So dietary supplements are considered in the category of food. They have fairly strict labeling requirements, but unlike drugs, do not have a formal process by which they are tested for safety and effectiveness. They generally have a disclaimer on the packaging that explicitly says that the supplement has not been tested by the FDA for these purposes. The FDA does require a review, but not for approval per se. It's basically just a review of the safety of the new supplement ingredients, though they actually don't even review old ones prior to the act. And this passive effort rarely results in limitations of sales. So the agency is permitted to restrict the substance if it poses a, quote, significant and unreasonable risk under conditions of use on the label or is commonly consumed. They don't mention anything about effectiveness. So I went on TikTok and Twitter to see how often berberine is being talked about and marketed. And it's astonishing. I mean, particularly on TikTok, tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions of views for dozens of active accounts promoting berberine, many with reasonable statements of concern, but others that are just flat out full promotion mode. So libertarians may be happy that the supplement market is so unfettered, but in an age that is often driven by poor information on social media, where the average viewer may not be discriminating beyond who has a lot of followers, dangers lurk and our listeners should do their own due diligence before quickly adopting new supplements.
you know how you're bringing up a really good point. And I know actually the commissioner, Dr. Robert Califf has, when he first came in, said that he really wanted to address some of these issues. And it does drive me crazy to see some of these claims. I mean, claims that you would never see on pills, uh, on, on foods and on right. supplements and, and on a wide range of things that just have, as you're mentioning, such a different threshold. And I think it can be quite deceiving to people because they may have this belief that the, any of these sort of claims go through the same kinds of, of screening and they don't, they don't, they simply don't. So, yeah, I think this is a big problem. I think people spend a lot of money. They actually even put themselves at risk because they do this in, in instead of using something that's been shown to be even, yeah. more, you know, be effective. And, and this is an area that definitely needs improvement. I'm, I'm so glad you brought it up and, and talked about it. Thanks. You've been listening to Health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman. So how did we do? To give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K-Y-A-L. And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E. You can also email us at health.veritas at yale.edu. Aside from Twitter and our podcast, I'm fortunate to be the faculty director of the healthcare track and founder of the MBA for Executives program at the Yale School of Management. Feel free to reach out via email for more information on our innovative programs, or you can check out our website at som.yale.edu EMBA. Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks to our researchers, Ines Gil and Sophia Stumpf, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. They are absolutely amazing. Talk to you soon, Howie. Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.